Welcome to the Maris Review. My name is Maris Kreisman, and I'm so delighted to be joined today by Rebecca Carroll. She's the host of the podcast Come Through with Rebecca Carroll and a cultural critic at WNYC. Her writing has been published widely, and she's the author of several interview-based books about race and Blackness in America, including Sugar in the Raw, Voices of Young Black Girls in America. She lives in Brooklyn with her husband and her son, and her new memoir is called Surviving the White Gaze. It's so nice to have you here, Rebecca. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm such a fan of you and your podcast and your love of books. It's just so heartening. And I am such a fan of you and your podcast. And I loved reading about your love of books in your memoir. This is a, a like a, a little funny anecdote to start out with, but you write about how you worked for Charlie Rose for a very tumultuous year. Two, two years. Two, two. You got yep. to meet Toni Morrison and you oh, got in your copies. Of- I did. <laughs> I sure did. And she was so gracious. And just every single, I mean, I, as I wrote in the memoir, like she was the living ancestor I was waiting for. And, and just the, the care that she took with her inscription um, and, you know, just sort of seeing in me, uh, you know, a young aspiring writer, Black woman who wanted to create a world that would reflect my innermost thinking. Um, and I just felt that from her. And it was a, a tremendous joy. I'll never forget. I'm, I'm hugely heartbroken that she'll never be able to read this book. You know, I mean, that's sort of, um, that's sort of uh, touting my, my, myself a little bit, like, or the assumption that she would read it. But I did write it very much with her in mind, I don't think I would have written it without her mm-hmm. encouragement and her precedent. And then, of course, a, a side detail is that Fran Leibowitz was very <laughs> unhappy <laughs> that you weren't invited to her party. Yeah, is- yeah, yeah. Which was, you know, Fran uh, Leibowitz, and it's great because we, there's this, you know, this um, Scorsese series that's yeah. out on Netflix, which is really great for folks who are of a certain age and who have lived in New York for a certain period of time. I mean, she just she just is is New York. Um, but yeah, I met her when she was a guest on the show and she is super into books as well. And she um, recommended all of these folks. I remember her saying, you've got to read Mavis Gallant. You've got to read her, you know. <laughs> um, so I read Mavis Gallant for the first time. But yeah, she, you know, it made perfect sense to me that she and Toni Morrison were best friends. Um, cause they were both so fiercely intellectual and they loved to laugh. And, um, you know, Fran wrote a really beautiful piece about Tony after she passed and just how, how much fun they had together. And I can just picture it. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly their love of books was, was clear. Absolutely. So in surviving the white gaze, first of all, you dedicate it to your son, mm-hmm. um, and your childhood was so much so different from from his is a yeah yeah tell me about the act of recreating your childhood and and how you felt and um the things that you know now that you didn't know then and how that creeped into your writing I think that what I really what it really had going for for me is that it was so truly cinematic um like it really was um idyllic and beautiful and um i mean just just being immersed in this world of 
nature and gardens, the smell of fresh green beans, you know, like I would wait for them to grow and then pick them off the plant and eat them right there. Um, you know, the, the, just this, just the, the space around us, that's all we saw. And so it was easy for that to have made such an indelible mark on my mind and to, to recreate that was actually kind of fun. It was kind of fun in a sort of heartbreaking way. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, it's Maris. Great children's books open up a new world for discovery. With Literati Kids, your child can explore uncharted places every month with spellbinding stories handpicked by experts. Literati Kids is a try-before-you-buy subscription book club. Each month, Literati delivers five vibrantly illustrated children's books, bringing the immersive magic of reading to your home. Literati's age-based book clubs ensure appropriate reading to your budding bookworm, whether they're snuggling with you for your story time or letting their imaginations roam free. Each book bundle is thoughtfully tailored by education experts with five stories meant to spark new interest and nurture a healthy curiosity. Head to literati.com slash Maris for 25% off your first two orders. Select your child's book club and start them on a literary journey like no other. Literati.com slash Maris, M-A-R-I-S, is the only place to find 25% off your first two orders of this one-of-a-kind book subscription, the most joyful way to foster a lifelong love of reading and learning. That's literati.com slash Maris. And so tell me a little more about Northern New Hampshire uh, and so, place yeah, a small rural town called Warner, um, sort of south central, ironically, <laughs> south central New Hampshire, <laughs> um, in the Lakes region, uh, sort of about 30 miles south of Sunapee, Mount Sunapee, and about 20 miles north of the um, capital, Concord. Um, you know, very, very small town, very obviously, as I write in the book, I was the only black uh, person in the town, um, probably for the first 10 years of my life, maybe. And we lived in a beautiful farmhouse at the top of a dirt hill road with, with, you know, fields and acres of, of nature um, until I was six. And then we moved to another house that was sort of more centrally located. I mean, which is not saying very much, but, um, <laughs> but my brother and sister and I, you know, uh, in those first six years were just, that's, we were each other's world. Um, and we were super creative. My parents are artists and my mom was deeply, deeply invested in our joy and our, um, in our childhoods, really, you know, she would have high tea for us, you know, every day. Um, and was endlessly patient and really like, I think, just really enjoyed our joy. Um, and it was really pure that way. And, and even you talk a lot about your sense of play and how being fairly isolated from the rest, rest of the world meant you had to just make a lot of shit up. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Which was pretty great, actually. Um, mm-hmm. My sister loved horses early on, from early on, and we played a, this game, which I write about, just called horses. Um, but, you know, we would use like chairs 
uh, and and the, you know the sashes from drapes, um, we, and we would create these sort of weird horses <laughs> that we really truly believed were horses, um, and we'd just get so fiercely into pretend, um, and we'd set up camp, and we would um, you know make a fire, and you know I mean it, it was all very very intensely um, make believe, you know, like, so we, when we looked at, um, a show like Mr. Rogers, right. In mm-hmm. the neighborhood of make believe, like that was old hat to us. <laughs> that, was like, that was like, totally. We've, we've been doing that forever. You know, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, and your parents were or are idealists in a way that was specific to perhaps that I'm looking at the copy and on the back of the galley and it says they believed in peace love and zero population growth (laughs) yeah I mean that is absolutely true but there is you know and I've gone back and forth with them and and you know other people who very much identify as hippies of that era they weren't really hippies per se like you know they weren't you know, they didn't, they weren't like sign carrying, protesting hippies. Mm-hmm. They were very much about my dad's sense of the natural world. They were, you know, they lived much more by a Thoreauvian kind of, sure, you know, mentality and ideology than, you know, what most movement hippies were doing. Mm-hmm. And, and so tell me, tell me about your perception of their understanding of race at the time oh when, their when understanding they... <laughs> oh, okay yeah maybe that's I mean, the wrong word <laughs> yeah i think that the the hippie part of them whatever hippie part there was believed that quote unquote the world was changing the civil rights movement was a good sign Mm-hmm. ostensibly mm-hmm. <laughs> um they often quoted as many white folks of that time white liberals quoted martin luther king you know they felt that it was a good th- that, that the country was moving in a good direction in terms of race now did they think deeply or were they engaged deeply with the idea of race certainly blackness um no they did not and i think you know, there was nothing wrong with that. I don't think that to them, clearly, they thought we we had two, two biological children. We would like to have another child. There's bound to be a kid who needs a home. Uh, and then this weird thing happened. This weird serendipitous thing happened with my dad's student um, who was white uh, and was 16, high school student. My dad taught high school art. And she had a a black boyfriend. And so I came out um, brown, black, um, and they thought that was fine. Uh, And, and they, it was sort of, you know, they were raceless, which was not a problem until it was. I I mean, I feel like I know a lot of people who were adopted and were raised to feel like they were absolutely the same as everyone else, which is such a lovely ideal and, and maybe not exactly how the world works. (laughs) Well, also, I mean, I think 
we have to interrogate what a lovely ideal means in mm-hmm. regard to race. So, you know, raceless to me means erasing what is so powerfully important and integral to my identity. So I think a more lovely ideal is for white folks to be in a place where they can, they can consider thinking deeply about race as a lovely ideal. Hmm. And yeah, so, so you, you build this in your childhood, you have memories of times when you were made to feel different or you encountered racism and it still, it felt strange to you. Yeah, it did. Took me off guard (laughs) because here's the other thing about the lovely ideal that's important Mm -hmm. is that not only did they not sort of see race, but they kind of lifted me in this way that made me special because I was different. So it wasn't, it wasn't that I, that I was black, a black child. And that was a wonderful thing. It was that I was different and that was a wonderful thing. And so I, I internalized that kind of, that sort of specialness, which is essentially exotification. Mm -hmm. And so when I experienced racism, I was like, that's weird. That's not, that's not my perception of myself. Right. Um, And, you know, there is that anecdote that I've told millions of times, but what's interesting about that anecdote of my fifth grade teacher Mm -hmm. telling me I was very pretty for a black girl is that I spent my, my childhood, my, my youth, my young adulthood thinking about that part of what she said, when really the part that I internalized was what she said after that, which is that most black girls Mm -hmm. are not very attractive at all. And the expression on her face, like I didn't realize that until I wrote this, wrote the memoir that, in fact, I thought about that sort of anecdote because it's anecdotal, right? Right. Pretty for a black girl. And you hear that a lot. But the part that really screwed me was that most black girls are not attractive. And so you, you talk about your adolescence as like, I remember what middle school was like, they're friendships and jealousies and uh cliques um girl you could not pay me to go back you could not pay me I mean it was enough to write about it like right like that the politics of it like it's only looking back when you like it's it's so weirdly complicated super super complicated and just you know hierarchical I mean it just it just is. And, and certainly when it comes to, you know, to class and, you know, I mean, race that I was it. So, I mean, the way that I negotiated that and navigated that took like serious skill, which sure. again, I mean, one of the sort of gifts of writing this memoir and excavating these memories is sort of pulling the, the things that I learned how to do without without knowing it at the time, mm-hmm. right? Like m- learning how to navigate the, those halls and the, that white world and that, that moneyed world um, was really strategic for an 11 year old right. Right. <laughs> and a 12 year old and a 13 year old. And 
yeah, you talk about the the kind of preppy that are, that they were that makes me feel like extremely Jewish even. So like, and you also talk about, of course, wanting to live up to their standards of beauty. They're what white people found attractive. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and not just what white people found attractive, but what the country. finds attractive as a whole the default the standard default of american beauty was and largely remains Mm -hmm. you know the visage of of ella essentially right you know the the flawless slightly peach colored skin and the silky you know cindy crawford basically Mm -hmm. that um and so it wasn't just that and i had just come off of my teacher telling me Right. That that black girls weren't pretty. So I I I didn't want to live up to it. I wanted to be it. Hmm. And and of course, you then have to as if you're aiming for the ideals of beauty in America today and you're a woman, you're yeah. going to have some disordered eating and um, yep. you're going to waste so much time trying to distort yourself yeah to yeah. become more attractive to others yeah it's really something that i mean i remember in this ninth grade maybe going into or 10th grade going into to 11th grade and i spent a summer um in portsmouth where my birth mother lived um scooping ice cream and weirdly lost a ton of weight I think because I was biking to my job and I was on my feet all the time Mm -hmm. it was my first like major like hustle 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 Mm -hmm. job um and I came back to high school and the entire like the way that people the boys my weird racist teacher you know the girl like the way that my body was looked at was so pronounced and, and different. It, it was, it blew my mind actually that, that, that could be such a game changer. Um, and so I sort of ended up trying to like figure out my relationship with food without really knowing or thinking rather that it wasn't a disorder that wanting to be skinny was actually what I should do and be. And yeah, most people I would say still. Yeah. And to think that. Um, and so in the middle of all of this, you are introduced to your birth mother. Mm-hmm. And at first, it's so exciting. You you talk about your relationship with her like you were freebasing cocaine, it felt like. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting, you know, about nurture and nature and... Mm-hmm adoption and birth ties and how we live to sort of reflect or see our reflection. Um, I, yeah, I mean, when I met her, it was a a weird, awkward, but beautiful. And I was, I mean, I was obsessed with her from pretty much jump because she was my birth mother, but also because she looked like this standard of beauty that I had been trying to replicate. And when I realized 
I mean, it took me a long ass time to realize, <sighs> but that she was actually not just trying to erase my blackness and encouraging me to replicate her beauty, but she was trying to co-opt whatever blackness I felt or had as part of me. I mean, it's very complicated. I, you know, I, I hope this doesn't come across in the book, but I struggled. I struggled um, with how to, to, to write about this relationship because it was so sure. enormously complicated. Um, and I really, I, I waited until I had the emotional fortitude and foundation to stand behind what I experienced and what I recall and how I recall it happening. Um, and so, you know, that, that's where we are. That's where we are. And, and tell me, do, were you keeping journals at the time? Yes. Like, yes, yes, I was. I, I, yes. I got the sense. Um, yes. But as you go on the book, there, there are so many things that she does to make you question your memory and yeah. your own perspective. So I, it, yeah, it, it's, that seems incredibly scary to then go back and, and try to write your unvarnished truth of what happened. Yeah, no, I mean, I started writing in a journal when I was, I don't know, eight or nine. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't weighty, heavy stuff. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so mostly we had pizza for dinner. <laughs> um, but I wrote religiously um, uh, up until I met my husband um, 17, 18 years ago and realized that, that I suddenly had a person who could engage with me in the way that I was oh. trying to engage with myself in my journals. <sighs> but so, yeah, I mean, I, that's, that is, is one thing that I feel um, confident about in terms of the memories being there. I mean, I was, and then there are some excerpts of, of from my journals in the book, right. you know, the, the struggle of what I'm, of what I'm trying to figure out is right there. You know, I'm not making anything up. I'm not, you know, candy coating anything. I was, it was a lot of my struggle was not a good look, you know, um, I was really working it out and I wanted, I wanted for folks to know that. Mm. And, and, and it's, you are so good at depicting what was so attractive about her, even as, as an adult reader, I, I saw, I, I watched baby 11 year old Rebecca going to the disco after midnight and um, wondering what the hell was going on. Yeah, it's funny you say baby Rebecca, you know, because I think about her so much and how I was trying so hard to be cool, to be what my birth mother wanted me to be, to, um, you know, to then kind of understand, you know, her, her ongoing kind of mantra was your packaging misrepresents your substance, your packaging misrepresents your substance, which is to say you look a certain way, but on the inside, you're none of those things. Um, and, and that, those two things that, that experience at the disco and, and her telling me that lived with me very, very long time. <clears throat> um, and so 
you know, I had to, again, as I said, like I, I waited until I had the emotional fortitude to sort of go back and revisit what that meant to me as a child to be told that my substance is void. And, and then there are, of course, other ways that it would be too easy to say that she sexualized you like you you had been sexualized by just about everyone in your community at that point mm-hmm. um one of the things that i noticed about your writing about your teenage years is that you are fairly casual about the sexual assaults that that happened to you Hmm. Um. And is that a question? D- why? <clears throat> oh, yeah. Tell me. <clears throat> tell me about that. So I didn't know. You know, the family friend who who molested me. I didn't know that until I was an adult. Sure. Um, the boy from high school who came to my house. Um. Was a was a popular boy. Like it was a gift. Like I was supposed to feel mm-hmm. honored. And then they, at the party on the, on the opposite soccer team, that was really deeply frightening. That, that was one, that was a, I thought if, if that door hadn't come down, he would have, he would have raped me. So um, the other, you know, I, I don't know if, if it's casual so much as I was, I was really trying to work out what about me was attractive, um, available, worthy, um, what I could get. I was trying to get what I could get. You know what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? It's like after, you know, again, navigating this kind of hierarchy and it really, I cannot drive that home enough. Like it really was so trenchant in terms of who was popular, who wasn't, that was the value system. Right. And so I absolutely, you know, felt, you know, like it didn't occur to me that this boy who came to my house, who was super popular was assaulting me. Right. It it just didn't occur to me until, until much later. Um, But what I do know, and I, and I think it sort of comes through later on in other relationships is that those, particularly those three incidents really informed how I made myself available to other men um, and what I was willing to uh, endure. Yeah. And so you finally get sort of away <laughs> uh, by sort of a way is that you, you went to UNH at first to, for college. Tell me about that first year and tell me about the experience of meeting uh, the man who you call your first real mentor. So UNH, I mean, did I, I don't know if I actually write the statistic in the book, but there were 10,000 students and 33 of them were black. It's like, so it was basically, you know, a replication um, of, of my up, 
upbringing, but again, you know, like many kids, you know, I had to get a scholarship. My parents didn't have enough money to take and that. And that was the best bet. And it was nearby to my birth mother. And there were all these factors that were sort of like, okay, I'll, I'll go and I'll, I'll, I'll try to figure out the silver lining slash weird experience was that I met this amazing professor, this amazing black professor who introduced me to black literature, who was very much a father figure um, who took me under his wing and um, encouraged my writing in a way that I just needed to hear. And he was absolutely, um, he was just a fabulous teacher, like just wonderfully engaged with the students and in love with the literature and very clear on, on direction and encouragement with writing um, and just had this way about him. Um, so, you know, that was, uh, I, I found myself opening up to him in a way that I hadn't opened up with anybody. Um, and that quickly, quickly took a turn um, when I discovered that, that he had had my birth mother as a student um, and they had a, um, I don't know what the right, even the right word is mm. to, you know, a, a, a lasting um, beef. Lasting beef. You know, for lack of a better, <laughs> for lack of a better word. And I ended up being um, at the crucible of that. Um, but it does seem like in college, you're allowing yourself to be drawn into your own identity that, that, that you had to definitely, de deny definitely. for so long. Yes. And I, and that was sort of when I, when my professor told me, you know, you can be black the way you want to be black. There isn't one way to do it. I felt totally liberated and like, well, okay, then I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to be black the way I want to be black. And I'm going to start a black student union. I'm going to tell everybody else to be black the way they want to be black, you know? Um, so yes, that was deeply liberating. And I did start, um, the first black student union in, in 20 years, I think it was. Um, and you know what I was doing, but I knew that I wanted to gather black students, the few that there were, um, and engage and do whatever, you know, whatever felt right, just to create a space, you know, before we had all of these terms of create a safe space, but, mm -hmm. or create community or, but, but it was that it was truly that it was, I wanted to be in a room with black folks. So I, so I created a black student union so that I could do that. And it's a, an amazing reversal that instead of trying to blend in um, to this, in this huge white school that you were drawn to activism. Yeah, it is. It is a huge reversal. And I think that um, I kind of, started to grow out of it, I think, um, in a, in a somewhat organic way. Um, but I do remember, you know, and I write about this in the book, um, applying for colleges, you know, when my friend was like, well, you should write an essay, you know, about, yeah. uh, you know, whatever, or about being black student. And that'll probably get you in just on that, you know, like thinking, wait, there's some fucked up shit <laughs> dynamics going on here. And particularly after, you know, the prom incident, you know, where I just, that triggered in me something, I just couldn't stop thinking like, wait a minute, how is this okay? 
um, and sort of trying trying to to prevent myself from second guessing these things that were happening because I didn't have anybody to really back me up on it. And then when I met my my professor, he backed me up on it, um, and that was liberating. And that was like okay, well, if I can do this, then I'm going to go in this direction because it feels better. Oh, it sure. just feels better. And in the prom incident was that you were going to prom with your friend and his father. Very good friends in sixth grade. Yep. Just yep. didn't want him to go with you. He forbid him. Forbid him. He actually forbid him. I <laughs> read the book. Who, what parent forbids their kid from going to the prom? Like that was my first response. And then I was like, wait, what? How? Yeah. I mean, again, you know, you, you asked me earlier about how, you know, racism, I was sort of like, what are you doing? Like how, how can you wield this, this kind of, this power and this assumption and this degradation? Like, who are you? Um, and so the, the, the prom thing was, was really, that was really, uh, clarifying, um, and pivotal. Uh, there was no other way to see it. You know, my friend said he forbid him to take you because you're black. Yeah, there's, it's it doesn't not a, get more clear than that. And then, and later you write about readings or Neil Hurston and she says, how can anyone deny themselves the pleasure of my company? Yes, it's one of my all-time favorite passages. Um, and I, yeah, and I use that um, as, a, as a jump off point for an essay that I wrote for my professor. And he, he said it was one of the best things I'd ever written. And in that sort of, then I made the connection of writing and literature as a way to further um, uh, strengthen and um, broaden my sense of blackness. And then I find it so fascinating that you began interviewing people pretty soon after, I mean, while you were in college and soon after. Yeah. And by the time you were in your mid twenties, you had written a bunch of books. Yeah. Um, and it, they all seem to go towards that same goal of exploring uh, your heritage and um, exploring how people experience race across the country. Yeah, I mean, it was my own, it's, it's what my parents should have done. Um, and so um, that is what I, I went to learn about blackness and about black culture. And, um, you know, very much in the same way that I created Black Student Union, it was like, I want to be in company and community with Black folks. And this, to me, is the most authentic way I can do it. Um, and, and it was to just listen and to be, um, and to be around folks who had such different experiences, but also very much a collective experience. Mm -hmm. I think you talk about your hair throughout yeah, the book. I do. Have your parents read the book? Have they, have, do they get it? That, that you would have liked for them to have learned perhaps how to care for your hair better? 
I don't know. I think about that a lot, like getting it, like what it, what it would sound like or feel like to me for them to get it. Um, and I only know it when I, when I, in terms of white people and not just my family, but I only know mm-hmm. white people who get it when they get it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know what the, what the criteria or what the, what the, what sure. the, the thing is that, that tells me, I mean, I think again, you know, ostensibly, I think my mom gets it, but doesn't really get it, get it. Um, and I think my dad is sort of just, just sort of done with the conversation. Um, but I think there would have to be, an, you know, and I don't know what it feels like to be the white parent of a black child and have a child write this experience like this. I imagine and have heard <laughs> from them yeah. that, you know, it's a lot. Um, but I would say that I don't quite feel, I mean, there's a part of me that feels like it's kind of too late for them to get it. Um, but that I wrote the book in part for them to get it. And I, I, I can't help that whenever I read a memoir about family life, I have to go to the acknowledgements at the end. And, and see what the status of all of these relationships are. And um, you thank them in a really lovely way. Yeah, I mean, my mom is pure heart. I mean, she just is. And I have said to her many, many times, I mean, these, these last few years of writing the book have been very difficult for her, for us. Um, but she and I have always been very close and she's like the, the, of the, the, you know, the, the carousel of parents in my life, (laughs) she is the, you know, the purest and, um, and I love her deeply. Um, And they both, you know, I think that they, and I hope this comes across really, they've created a life that they wanted for themselves. And those, you know, those choices that they made, had repercussions and these are those and so you know my hope is that we're all sort of grown enough to sort of understand that but that but but I think it's been quite emotionally challenging for my mom again my dad is is kind of closed off from it um Rebecca this has been really wonderful before I let you go please recommend some books for me for us. Okay. I feel like knowing you, you've probably already read this book, but The Prophets. I haven't read it yet. It's it's on my night table. It, so this is this is a book that is actually, you know, one in a thousand, you know, where it does everything you want it to do. It's completely new ground, original. The writing is lyrical and beautiful, and um, it's both kind of ancestral and um and modern, and it just Deeply, deeply moving by Robert Johnson, Robert Jones Jones. Jr. Um, Also, this is a a book from a year or two ago, The Yellow House by Sarah Brown, which is again just a gorgeous, deeply, deeply researched, like a deeply researched memoirs can be such a beautiful payoff. Mm -hmm. Like you might not think so, but I just love that the story of her family and the generations and her older brothers and sisters and 
it's so beautifully written. Um, and then I can never not, you know, recommend that people revisit Toni Morrison. I mean, you just, you have to. Um, Sula is my favorite book, but The Bluest Eye is the one, I think, in terms of, since I'm promoting my book of Surviving sure. the White Gaze, and because it was so, so, so uh, influenced by The Bluest Eye, I would recommend that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Maris. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.